podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net and follow us on Twitter at CypherCastNet. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing two spells. With Embrace Brace the Black Cube, we discuss Monty Cook's ninth design diary about surreal gaming. And then with The Careful Gaze of the Grigori, we talk a bit more in depth about character arcs. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. With Embrace the Black Cube, we discuss the occasional design diary blog posts about the design of the Invisible Sun RPG. In this segment, we discuss the ninth design diary about surreal gaming. So this is a subject that's, I think, kind of come up for me ever since the beginning of this podcast. How, how do you run a surreal RPG? And this design diary addresses that topic pretty specifically. Um, I think we talked about this a long time ago. Uh, do you know which episode off the top of your head that was? It would have been in the first two or three episodes. So it's almost a full year ago. Oof, man, that, uh, that is a long time ago. Uh, as of this recording, we're, we're recording a week before Gen Con. Um, and we dropped our first episode shortly after Gen Con, uh, wrapped up last year. Uh, and one of the things that I was coming into Invisible Sun with was the question of what is surrealism? How do you bring surrealism into uh, an RPG setting? And how do you make it something you can work with at the table? Like, how do you communicate to your players, you know, what surrealism is and what makes this setting so unique? Uh, so this design diary really takes a look at that and I think gives us a whole bunch of good information about how you can, you know, communicate the surrealism of the setting. Uh, and we've also got a whole bunch of other resources that you can turn to in order to get some inspiration for, you know, how to bring surreal imagery to the table. Bringing it to the table, I think, is still another question that lays, lies outside of this discussion we're going to have. But like finding inspiration for it and some general guidelines, I think that's what we're going to get out of this design diary. Uh, so the the first the first thing that Monty gets into with his desi uh, design diary is that he was really inspired by seventies sci-fi and fantasy book uh, cover art, uh, and we've got some links down in the show notes uh, from I think uh, some stuff that I found uh, Monty had linked out to previously. Uh, and there are a whole bunch of old sci-fi and fantasy cover. Uh, covers that are on, I think it might be a Tumblr or something, but uh, as he was describing it to us in the interview we did uh, just recently, uh, he said that he was, when he was a kid, he would look at the, the, the cover art and he would see, hey, there's this city that's depicted and above the city there's this giant eye uh, looking down upon it. And that story might have been something similar to 1984, where Big Brother's always watching. But the interpretation of the the art was that, oh, what if it was like this giant eye that, 
is omnipresent and is, you know, overlooking the city. The art on that book was just an interpretation. It was a metaphor. And as a kid, he was looking at that as what was literally happening happening in the book, even though it, it didn't. And as he got older and grew up and started to understand what metaphor was, that, that uh, interpretation of it fell off. Um, but he still had this uh, nagging question in the back of his mind uh, that was basically, what if, what if all those covers, what if that surreal art was actually true? What if that's what the world was like? Uh, and that's kind of where Invisible Sun's setting seems to have sprung from, uh, from this inspiration from when he was a kid with all of this interesting imagery uh, and turning those metaphors into something that's actually literal. And we've talked about that method before in previous segments where we've turned elements from games into surreal components for your particular uh, session or encounters. We've talked about surreal libraries, I think, and Mm -hmm. uh, how to make other things surreal. Dragons, orcs. Right. And and I think with that method, we see uh, a parallel to what Monty was talking about, where you try to figure out what the meaning is for that particular idea, why it's there, how it's different from everything else. Uh, then you amplify that meaning so that meaning is the most important part of its place uh, in the story and in the adventure and use that meaning as the anchor for everything else so that your world is populated by a bunch of meaningful components uh, rather than uh, a string of necessary encounters uh, that you might have uh, in a stereotypical adventure. And so meaning takes the the kind of front stage uh, in this process. One of the lessons that I took away from our early discussions is that meaning is something that's important in surrealism. You find the meaning in the subject that you're trying to uh, describe or or portray, and you focus in on that meaning, and you bring that meaning out, and you make that meaning more readily apparent to, you know, whoever's experiencing uh, this this piece of art or fiction or any, uh, whatever it is you're working with. And this sort of flows into, like, how do you apply surrealism to the world that you're trying to describe here? And Monty gave us a few tricks that I think um, are good to keep in mind when you're putting your setting together and you're sitting at the table. Uh, They're in this design diary, and they're also in some of the question and answers that we got from uh, our interview. Um, uh, But the... The biggest one I have on here, the first one, was meaning is important. Uh, So it sounds like that might be something that would be difficult to keep in mind when you're at the table and just sort of reacting to what your players are doing. Uh, When you're coming up with something off of the, you know, from the seat of your pants, uh, it's kind of hard. I I think it would be hard. At least it's going to be hard for me to come up with a character or a setting detail that has a significant meaning uh, and turn that into something that's surreal. Most of the time when I'm reacting to my players and improvising something, I'm just throwing something in there and then the meaning of it becomes apparent later on. So that's probably another technique that you'd be able to use, which is, uh, and it actually also sort of um, is reinforced by... Uh, what were the 
there was a surreal artist uh, artistic technique uh, where you would do what is it automatic uh, automatic writing yeah automatic writing and then there was also some way that you like people who were paint like painters would do it too mm-hmm. um, but that I think that kind of you know would slot into that sort of idea where hey I'm just improvising this and it's I'm not really thinking about what I'm creating and I'm going to find the meaning for this later. I'm going to figure out where this fits into the story later. Uh, so that, you know, that might be something you'd be able to come back to uh, and apply meaning to at another time. Uh, but like, you know, finding that meaning is something that I think would be, you know, good to keep in mind. One technique that may work, though, I think it'll be difficult to use initially. Some things people will get better at over time is to introduce a, a kind of a quiet step that you don't verbalize when you are developing improvised material for your game. If you were to introduce a new building, let's say, you would typically describe the building and mm-hmm. you would still want to do that. But force yourself to describe it using a simile. Say the building is like what? And... Once you figure out what the building is like without verbalizing it, then instead describe the building as if it were literally that thing that it is like. So if you have a, uh, a building that is like a, uh, a guard that stands over the city and its shadow casts uh, across the front gate or something along those lines, uh, you might use that sort of language for a traditional RPG. Mm-hmm. But in this case, you might say, the 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 building is a guard and its shadow does cast out over the entire city even if these things could not be literally true in our world they can be literally true in indigo or in some of the other air, uh, uh, planes of, of the invisible sun so you just mm-hmm. sort of silently generate a simile um, and then you translate it into something that's literally true within the game setting itself. Uh, that's that two-step process will take some time getting used to. Yep. But I think that might be an, a, a, an easy way to transition into the direct and improvisational uh, creation of surreal material. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's going to be something I'm going to be focusing on as we sort of start doing more uh, GMing with invisible sun. And an example of this might be from a, a recent some material they've been releasing on Twitter. This this will have probably been going on for a while by the time you hear this, since this is probably a month away from being released. But one thing they've been doing as part of the pre-order is uh, when tweets get enough retweets, they uh, have new cards that they're debuting on their Twitter feed. Some of these cards have been incantations. Some of them have been ephemera. And one of those ephemera illustrates how wild and crazy some of these spell effects are. And that when you're thinking about spell effects and how things work in, in this world, one does not have to think about biology or any of our natural processes. One mm-hmm. of the ephemera involves cutting off a hand, and this apparently does no damage, but it does cause pain. Uh, and that hand can then basically take the form of a small beetle and move around uh, and provide sensory information to the vislay that uses the ephemera. So we're talking about spells that involve dismemberment without damage to the self uh, that immediately re- reverts back uh, and you know it breaks the continuity of the body. It defies our sense of, of biology and what would constitute an injury and just... You know, 
tells us to go wild with the sorts of, of spells we have uh, and the th- things we can do, the effects that we can have on the world. Yeah, and I think that's going to be a really important tool to put in the players' belts. Like, hey, the there are a lot of rules that we've had, um, you know, in terms of magic and how that stuff works, but we're going to throw some of that out. Like, mm-hmm. don't worry about it. So a few other points about applying surrealism to this world. Um, Monty suggests letting your imagination run wilder than it normally would. Um, so case in point, that spell that you cut your hand off and turn your hand into a beetle. And, hey, it just hurts a little. Don't worry about it. Um, some of the other examples he had were a uh, floating city that's held aloft by moth wings uh, or a clock-faced demon that uh, hates time. Uh, we've also talked about uh, libraries um, and turning those into, you know, surreal places that you might go and visit and talk to. Another point that you brought up was uh, don't be so concerned with uh, believable biology and ecology. Uh, so if there is a city on the back of a turtle, uh, don't worry about how that giant turtle eats and how much it needs to eat. That's not important. The, the important thing is that the city is on the back of that turtle. And there are other problems that that city is going to be facing. Like the turtle is not the important part of it. Like it's, it's an interesting note and it's something that might have more meaning later on, but how that actually functions, yeah, that's, that's not the important bit. Ideas and visuals take precedence over rationality. So once again, reinforcing like strange and odd biologies, like don't, don't worry about describing something that doesn't seem logical or shouldn't actually work in the real world. Like we're, we're in a different world now and we're breaking those rules. Like reality as we know, it doesn't apply anymore. Uh, and the other big thing is, uh, make sure you're not going too far when you're pulling surrealism into the game. You need to, it was the same sort of thing with Numenera. If you made everything weird, then your players don't know how to, predict anything it's it's too random too strange uh and it's the same thing here like you can't make every single thing surreal and odd uh the players are going to need something that they can you know ground themselves into the setting and uh monty is providing saturn as that solid and dependable place that players will be able to understand but can still be uh warped and strange and surreal Uh, And Saturn is the large city that it seems like a lot of, well, at least the beginning of a lot of Invisible Sun campaigns is going to start off in. Yeah, and I I think this gets us back to that first advice that meaning is important. And it is one of the ways we can go wrong is by introducing what we think is surrealism, which is really just randomness or, or, uh, or unpredictability without meaning. So a city that is held aloft by moth wings that indicates that that city is somehow flying, it is elevated, that it has a connection to some inherent characteristic of the city has meaning and is therefore useful within the story. But if this, if we're just saying random words and connecting them to the city, um, and you know, it's it's a city made entirely of tennis shoes and uh, fountains of Mountain Dew or something, you're like this is just random words of things that are on my desk. It, it it doesn't have any particular meaning. That can be overwhelming and desensitizing, rather than reinforcing surrealism. 
So having a goal with the the similes and a goal with the meaning for the components uh, is important. And one way you could do that is by having a lot of mundane elements that don't have to have particular meanings because they are literally uh, understandable without uh, references to this surreal meaning, uh, but that creates a better contrast then with your flying cities and your clock face demons uh, that uh, which have some sort of more profound meaning uh, that is less obvious than its more mundane reference in our world. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going to wrap things up here and <clears throat> very quickly mention that uh, we do talk about this a little bit with Monty in our interview. Uh, you can find that linked in the show notes. Uh, and there was another interview that Monty did with uh, Cypher Speak uh, fairly recently. Uh, and he does talk about surrealism and bringing it into the game uh, there as well. So check out Cypher Speak as well. It's their 12th episode that he was on. Uh, there will be a link in the show notes. Uh, and there are a whole bunch of other links. Uh, I've collected some of the stuff that Monty's put together. Uh, he has a couple of Pinterest boards where he's collecting interesting artwork uh, and fashion uh, for the Invisible Sun stuff that he's doing. Uh, and there's the uh, 70 sci-fi art archive that you can also take a look at out there. Uh, and with that, I think we're going to move on to our next segment. With the careful gaze of the Grigori, we discuss a specific element of the Invisible Sun RPG. In this casting, we will address the opportunities and challenges that character arcs may present. Character arcs are one of the more novel elements of uh, the Invisible Sun RPG. Uh, I, I don't intend to get into a debate over whether they're entirely novel or how closely they resemble work in other, other uh, RPGs and the like, so I'm not going to make sweeping claims about their utter um, uh, originality. But it's certainly something that is that is emphasized more in Invisible Sun than in other Cipher System RPGs. It is emphasized more here than in other very popular RPGs like uh, Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition, Pathfinder, uh, and and other uh, you know uh, of the you know, most often played RPGs. So it's I think for those reasons alone worth discussing at some length. Uh, also, it is going to be, uh, it, based on our experiences, a very important part of the game and a, a part of the game that might be missed on initial reading until you start playing the game and taking the various components of the game quite seriously. Yeah, when I initially read through it, uh, I remember seeing character arcs and I thought, that's that's interesting. Like, that sounds like an interesting idea. Uh, but then as we got more into it, I started to realize that character arcs are going to be fairly important. I mean, with how much, uh, I, I guess I've been saying how much responsibility has been put on players and their characters, uh, character arcs are one of those big driving factors that it's kind of telling the GM, these are the things that I'm interested in. And I mean, yeah, we're not going to talk about if this is a unique concept, uh, personally, I haven't really run into this. Uh, I mean, there there are some hints in other systems, like 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons has bonds and uh, backgrounds. Uh, but that kind of, you know, is a shortcut for players who aren't terribly interested in coming up with, you know, a, a big fleshed out story for why they're, you know, what their character was up to before the game starts. Um, this is more of a, a mechanical 
reinforcement that, hey, your character is important and we want to see it change. Yeah, it's a really big change of pace for my uh, my own work as a GM in the playtest. It has been a change of pace for the players in those playtests, too, as they become accustomed to how to use these character arcs. So it's something I anticipate we'll be talking about a lot because the analogies are a little harder than some other elements of the game where we can say things like, you know, Forte is a lot like a focus. It's mm-hmm. not exactly alike. And there are some differences that are worth discussing, but there's, you could, you, you know, a lot about Forte. If you, if you know what a focus is in the cipher system, it, it, that analogy isn't naturally present for character arcs. Um, even if there have been things like it to varying degrees that go back decades and, and, and decades in different RPGs. Uh, one thing I, I think that we will find is that character arcs are very important, but how important they are is up to the player, the, the, up to the group. And this is the case again, wherever these are implemented. Um, I've been playing in a 5e game where they just don't really, uh, bonds and backgrounds and ideals just don't come up. That the group just doesn't care. That's not what they're playing for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are other groups where I could imagine those things are vitally important. And so even within that particular game, there's a lot of variance in how much the characters arcs uh, as implemented through bonds, ideals, and the like uh, influence the story that's being told. In Invisible Sun, it's pretty clear to me the intent is for the character arcs to be quite influential. But even there, there is some room for different groups to rely upon character arcs in different ways. I, you know, I can see some groups going through the character creation process. And as a result, the stories emerging entirely out of that character process and the choice of character arcs. To the exclusion of a more traditional uh, model of where the GM says, oh, well, I have, a, I have a campaign plan. That campaign plan has these four to eight plot points. And there may be some variety in how we move from place to place, but I, I have an idea of where we're going. And I'll try to not necessarily railroad you, but at least guide you to make sure you get to this dungeon um, and you save this princess and you uncover this foul conspiracy. And, um, you know... Y- you, we could have almost none of that <laughs> if yeah. if the teams are, or the the groups are going uh, entirely off of character arcs, uh, or we may find a balance where di- some groups will say, you know, we're going to have almost like a television, um, a periodic television or episodic television model where you have an A plot, a B plot, and a C plot in a given episode, and sometimes the character arcs will be A and B, and the uh, campaign arc the gm creates is c sometimes it's a uh but there's a mixture of character arc and campaign uh you know planning that go into it and groups are going to find their balance uh, mm-hmm. and i know we've struggled with it not in the sense that we haven't enjoyed that struggle uh, but it's something that uh, my group is still sort of getting its brain around and finding the balance that we particularly like but as we get as we move through the play test and we move session to session, we're about you know a dozen sessions in at this point. I find that we're leaning more and more towards those character arcs. It's it's kind of growing on us um, and uh, providing a stronger magnetic pull on our stories uh, than I had anticipated in the beginning. So, are you doing a lot of your work in your character arcs at the table, or are you using development mode in between to sort of focus in on one specific character's character arc rather than it? you know, taking the focus away from, you know, the rest of your players during an actual table session. We're, we have 
done almost everything at the table. Okay. We, uh, there has been only <laughs> our, our, our group has winnowed some over time, natural attrition you have in a lot of groups, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we've tried pure development mode for a pair of people when the, the most commonly attending third couldn't make it. And in that session, there was a bit more attention to character arcs because we came in saying, oh, well, this is an opportunity to really focus on character arcs. Uh, but even when, even though that was the only example of development mode and when all of the other 10 or 11 sessions have been the whole group and ostensibly related to the campaign I had initially envisioned, we're still able to advance those character arcs somewhat because of you know, my work to connect the character arcs into the campaign. Some just because the character arcs are so darn interesting. They're like, well, no, we, this is so cool. We just need to do this right now because it sounds like fun. Uh, and some kind of works the other direction where one player has sort of incorporated the campaign trajectory into a character arc. So now I can service what I, you know, the campaign I'd envisioned while also servicing a character arc. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it's a continuing challenge to balance uh, across even I only have three active players at this point, three different character arcs and trying to make sure that each one gets the attention it deserves uh, and moves forward, maybe not every session, but every couple of sessions. It, it's a fun challenge, uh, but it is a challenge. Uh, are you doing a lot more prep in between sessions to account for that? Or is this something you're re- reacting to at the table as it comes up? I am. I wouldn't say I'm doing more prep, but maybe. But that prep is certainly a different kind of prep. I'm not doing prep in the form of creating stat blocks mm-hmm. <laughs> or anything along those lines. Uh, I happen to have a lot of time in the car uh, as part of my commute. <laughs> and I use that time to think about, well, what I'm going to be do- doing next time. So in some sense, I have a lot of prep because I may, if you total it all up, spend hours. Uh, before each session, you know, more time certainly preparing for sessions than in the sessions themselves. But um, it's just thinking about interesting things that we can do, sometimes of a general fashion that push forward the story, sometimes general because they're just a cool idea or a, a visual has inspired me. Uh, or it, and sometimes it is very specifically saying, well, I haven't done enough for this character arc recently. What are we going to do about that? Um, and how do I, how can I have something interesting for that character arc that would still interest the other members of the group? And the, the members of the, of the group have been very cooperative in this. They're very open to participating in each other's character arcs. So that hasn't been really, there hasn't been much competition between players for attention, but it's, I still feel it's incumbent upon me to try and make the advancement of the character arc satisfying for the player who's, who's character has that arc but also entertaining for the other players as well mm-hmm. uh, again it's it's a challenge but it's a fun challenge it's it's really making me stretch and grow as a gm and i suspect these skills that i'm practicing could translate really to any game and i'll be doing a lot of the same things if i go back to playing you know at some point in the future uh in virtual space dungeons and dragons seventh edition which i'm sure mm-hmm. won't be for several decades uh one yeah. decade through our neural net hookups or whatever we have, um, even you know, that game, when I'm running those games, I will be exercising the skills I've developed in this game. I, it, it's, yeah, it's just been influential in my growth over the last year. And I feel like I've, I've gained a lot of fundamental knowledge about how to run games, how to tell stories in a participatory framework um, that I hadn't really had to develop uh, in other systems. 
Uh, very quickly, what are the character arcs that you're working with? So uh, the initial arcs for my group were, were pretty fine. Focusing on the characters that were in it long enough to kind of move through uh, some of these. And I don't think any of them have finished their arc, but are, some of them are getting close to the close to the finish of their arc. Uh, there was one character who, again, uh, surprised me and uh, had to sort of contemplate how to deal with uh, a character arc of a relationship, building a bond with another entity. Um, mm-hmm. But instead of it being built to you know, build, to represent a character arc of a connection between an, a PC and an NPC, uh, this player wanted the character to connect with the city okay. and build a bond with the city. Now, it's a surreal setting. So my <clears throat> instincts were, this is entirely possible. I don't know how yet, but we're going to have to figure this out. Mm-hmm. And, in fig- and it's, been a, it's been wonderful to try to figure out what that would be. And uh, it gave me an excuse to have the character, the player, help me build the city. Uh, and we're and, and this just considering. Well, what does it mean to have kind of courtship between a player and a city? It's been a lot of fun, uh, and it's an example of how these character arcs are framed in a way that they can accom- they can incorporate a lot of different stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, another character had a more traditional romantic character arc, uh, and that one I'm struggling with. Um, even though it's not kind of as unconventional as the first, it's just not something I've done a lot in my games. Mm-hmm. And so I'm having to learn how to do that. And I, I don't think I've done that well yet, but I'm, I'm growing to it. <laughs> I'm trying to develop those skills and it's going to be very good for me to do so. Um, and uh, so I'm, that, that's been exciting just because it's so unlike what I've done in the past. Um, and a, th- a third character, uh, you waited a little while to declare a character arc and did so in a way that connected once she saw where the campaign was going and kind of used the campaign trajectory to say, oh, well, the mystery involved in this campaign will become my character arc. Solving that mystery will be part of my character arc. Mm-hmm. Uh, so very different strategies from the from different players about their character arcs and cha- different challenges of how to incorporate those character arcs into the story. And slowly, I'm sort of giving up my grip on the campaign, which I think is a good thing. <laughs> uh, this is not again a game where it is intended where I, where the you know, the GM comes in and says, "Okay, well, you know, we have these ten things that have to happen. Let's march our way through them." We've got you know Orc and Pie in the first room, and you know Ogre and uh, Stew in the second, and we're going to work our way through all of these rooms or all of these encounters or whatever. Instead, I'm realizing I should just kind of let more of the campaign emerge and change the directions I'd intended. Um, And when I do that, the the experiences have been more satisfying. So I've just got to trust in the system. Uh, And so far that trust has been rewarded when I've allowed myself to to give in. Uh, Two things. Uh, First, what the hell is Orkin Pie? Why is that a joke? I think this was pretty early in the third edition days. Uh, Monty Cook maybe had a blog post first, and he was trying to talk about the fundamental units of an encounter in Dungeons mm-hmm. and Dragons, and said like the fundamental units of an encounter is orc and pie. That is, you have a room. The room has an orc, and the orc is guarding a pie. That is, every encounter has a place, opposition, and a reward. Okay. So the most basic form of that is an orc in a room guarding a pie. Cool. Uh, and the second thing I, I, I thought would be, uh, important to bring up, we might not really get into it here, uh, cause we're rolling up on time, I think, but, um, okay. So those character arcs are all 
I don't know. I don't know if I would call them traditional for an RPG uh, because like the relationship ones I think would be new for somebody who's more accustomed to traditional RPGs. I know that there are some indie games out there that, you know, focus on building relationships and things like that, but like solving a mystery, like that's a very traditional one. And there are some character arcs out there. We had one in our playtest, which was uh, fall from grace. And that's also detailed in one of Shauna's posts over on uh, the Monty cook game site. I believe there will be a link in the show notes, uh, but that's a character arc where somebody's going to go through something that's fairly destructive and, you know, potentially damaging to the people that are involved with them, which would include the characters of the other players. Uh, and the character arcs that you're working with here don't have that same sort of destructive nature. So once, like, how are you going to tackle a character arc that could be such a negative experience for not only that player, but, you know, potentially other people at the table. That's going to require careful negotiation, maybe, with all of the players in the group. And I think I would certainly allow people to more or less opt in or out of the aftermath of that fall from grace. Mm -hmm. And so that if people want to participate in that story, they can be close to it and they can share in the implications if they want a firewall between their character and whatever those implications are, that also can, can be created. And we, we can come up with a hypothetical that might illustrate this better. Um, if, you know, because the character arc is very general. So it's of course going to be, it's going to have a specific manifestation within a given story. So let's say someone's fall from grace is that they have a falling out with their order. Mm -hmm. Let's say it's a maker who falls from grace in that uh, she uh, will have had a kind of a, she'll be thought of as a highly um, kind of regarded up and comer uh, in the rank of the makers. But the fall from grace is going to be that she creates something that doesn't work or it has some dramatic negative impact on the city. It, it, you know, she creates a, a, an item that ends up becoming sentient and destroying a neighborhood or something, something crazy like that. I could ask you in anticipation of this because you, you declare these these character arcs, and so you're kind of you're negotiating with the GM and the rest of the party. Like this is where I want things to go. How can we have this happen? And so the negotiation is kind of built into the process. You might say, okay, so you know, do we want to do this in, with all of the players involved, all the characters involved? Do mm -hmm. some players not want to necessarily suffer the negative? Uh, negative implications of that. Maybe they don't want to be around when this rampage happens. They don't want to be associated with this rampage uh, uh, to the point where if it's just one person, maybe the whole uh, arc can be played out or almost all of the arc can be played out in development mode, even if the consequences of that fall from grace feed back into the full group's uh, story. Mm -hmm. But if some of the players want to participate in that, maybe they can be around, they could have been affected by this, they could have been hurt in this rampage or their neighborhood and their their neighbors might have been affected by this. So you can kind of allow people to opt in to varying degrees based on their level of comfort. And my sense is with a lot of these character arcs, you say like, this is where I want this to go and you you talk it out. Just like when you're creating characters and you're talking out who's in my neighborhood and what are the issues and and um, who are the NPCs. It's a shared experience. Character arcs, though they're linked to a particular character, the boundaries of those arc, character arcs have to be negotiated with the whole group. And that seems to be in the spirit of the game. 
Yeah, yeah. The the whole character creation process is collaborative. So putting together these character arcs and working them out with the rest of the group, yeah, that makes total sense. I think there's a lot more that we can talk about with character arcs. Um, we've just kind of touched the surface on them. There are a whole bunch of character arcs. We can talk more about them now. Um, we can talk about you know how you, players get rewarded for them. We can talk about... Um, how you can start on new character arcs and have multiple character arcs running at one time. Uh, and I think it would be interesting to dig into this from both a GM's perspective uh, a bit more and also a player's perspective, because I think that the you know players are going to have a lot more agency uh, simply by having this defined arc that says, hey, you can kind of steer where your story is going to go rather than just, uh, you know, following along and listening to what the GM is planning for your group. Yeah. And we will have much more to say in the future. There's still, uh, you're still limited by the non-disclosure agreement to some extent, though I'm happy to report that not particularly us, but uh, playtesters in general have been given broader discretion um, and in a broader range of topics that we can discuss. So we're a little freer to talk about the game than we than we were even a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so while some topics are still uh, uh, off limits for public discussion, I think you're, you, you will be able to hear us talk about more things more freely uh, uh, now that we're approaching uh, Gen Con, where some more information is likely to come out. Uh, as well as the uh, recently opened pre-order. With pre-order, I think is what primarily motivated this loosening of the NDA a little bit because they they hope to encourage people to talk about the game more uh, and talk about how it's different and what sort of play experiences the game offers as a way to inform people of uh, that the game exists and mm-hmm. that it's available uh, or, you know, available for pre-order. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about what more things we can talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's nice to have that stuff loosened up. So we will have a bunch more interesting things to, to bring up here on the show. Hello, this is Scott with a special addendum. We are including a quick hex with this episode and maybe the next to bring you an example of actual play building on the character generation session in episode 25. We hope that you enjoy the simplified illustration of development mode as a way to explore the setting of the Invisible Sun RPG and the potential for one-on-one play. Itono is a connected Stoneheart Goetic who fuses Nightmare to Fist. We We begin uh, this story with Itono uh, going about his normal duties uh, at the temple. Uh, They're in between sessions where the uh, head of the the temple, William Adso, and his various assistants, including Itono, uh, will help people purge themselves of bad memories or nightmares or other sorts of influences. Uh, Itono has to uh, move through the, the the temple area, just you know, basically cleaning up. Uh, also, they use what is purged from these memories and nightmares as inspiration uh, for wards that uh, he draws throughout the temple. So he will uh, draw uh, sm- small figurative designs, really th- in various rooms throughout the temple. And we'll say he starts. 
this particular story starts with him doing this as part of his normal uh, operation. We'll say he has just come out of a session where a person has purged themselves of a nightmare in which they were being pursued by a, a, a large predatory cat-like creature. Like a giant panther of some kind was hunting them through a wooded area. Uh, so having purged this uh, this client of a, this particular nightmare, uh, I am now drawing on the walls a representation of a giant cat uh, to represent that particular nightmare that has been purged from a client. It'll, re- it'll have now a physical representation on the wall. It serves as a, uh, a, a commemoration of this nightmare that is removed uh, and a reminder of the sorts of forces that we try to help people deal with. Uh, as you were talking about this, I just remembered that in Saturn, well, I guess in the actuality, memories are used as a form of currency they are so this temple what do they do with the the nightmares and memories that they are removing from people are they stored are they donated is that how they pay their rent this is fun um how about uh, most of the time these nightmares are considered too toxic to be traded. And so we try to help people. They, they come here to purge themselves of the memories as opposed to other places where they could, com- you know, could uh, turn those memories into a uh, commodity uh, or sell them uh, or other things. You know, they, they come here because these memories and these nightmares are, are too potent for them to try to sell. Oh, so the emotion mills say, no, thanks. We don't, we don't yes. deal in that kind of stuff. Right. However, uh, maybe one of the other assistants has got sort of a sideline uh, diverting some of these nightmares into uh, memory globes and that he's selling sort of through a black market for people who are kind of adventure seekers. Uh, and there's an underground culture of sort of uh, of a contest where people are trying to prove their strength by enduring the most intense possible nightmares uh, or uh, uh, bad memories. I'm writing this down for posterity. Uh, nightmare test of strength. Okay. Yes, the nightmare market, or something along those lines. I've heard this going on, but I would not participate in, in such uh, such acts. That's uh, far too dangerous. Uh, it can have a warping effect on people's souls. Uh, whereas, you know, I'm here to help heal people and to help them get over these sorts of uh, distorting influences. So the last thing I want to do is to take those distorting influences and spread them around the, you know, the, the, uh, the people uh, as part of some sort of, you know, the, the equivalent of a cursed movie reel or something. Oh, it's uh, faces of death. Uh, or the ring. Yeah. Or the ring. Uh, okay. So, um, in order to kick things off here, uh, we, we've set the scene. Itono is basically doing paperwork after performing one of these procedures. And we want to introduce a little bit of inspiration to us. Uh, so what we're going to do here, dear listener, is we're going to flip one of the sooth cards. 
and we're going to use that art. Uh, Scott, do you happen to have your Sooth deck handy? I do not, but I can pull one. I can pull up the art book very quickly. Uh, okay, so we're going to use the art from that Sooth card to try and brainstorm something to give us a scene to work with here. Uh, we want to introduce some sort of situation that Itono is going to have to deal with. And that is hopefully going to drive where our actual play is going to go here. Uh, so here's what I've got. I have the Questing Knight, which is the Apprentice card from... I don't know the symbols, so let me just grab the book. It is the Visions family. And Visions are associated not with you. Visions are empaths. Okay. So, uh, do you have the questing knight? Yes, I found the questing knight. And so we can imagine that's been placed in either the first uh, s uh, slot for the Path of Suns, or if we're playing in develop mode remotely, uh, we can just refer to the questing knight, and eventually there'll be an app where we can just kind of pull up the image. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, we're using this in a, in a different sort of manner. We're just trying to kickstart some ideas here. So, the Questing Knight, we've got uh, a man, well, we have somebody riding on the back of a large swan with a shield, and there is, it looks like a red sun behind the swan itself. Filigree in the feathers, and, all right. So, there's a, there's a bit of a commotion outside of the temple. Uh, you hear... You hear people shouting, uh, and there is there is something going on out there, something terrifying that has really stirred up uh, the normal foot traffic that you know is going through this this part of the district. Your your temple is on a fairly well trafficked street, so you normally you hear people make, making their way to and from on the street outside, uh, but right now what you're hearing is distress and fear and people are concerned about something well in the spirit of the questing night i think i would need to in investigate this commotion uh and uh, i would make sure that my uh that the sigil that i'm drawing on the wall uh inspired by this predatory cat is kind of sufficiently complete uh but uh leaving my uh equipment uh, which would let's say it would include uh, basically an elaborate um, series of colored chalks. Uh, I pack my stuff up and I leave it uh, at uh, right below where the sigil is, and I move outside of the temple to in investigate the commotion. And I grab uh, on my way out a uh, a small flag. I like the I like in the questing night image. There is a either a lance or a standard of some kind. So I'm going to grab a a flag on my way out of the out of the temple, uh, which just indicates my uh, membership in that temple. So I can identify myself to other people in the area in case anyone needs shelter or help of, of some kind. They'll know that they can come to me and I can bring them into the temple. Okay, so we uh, we move out to the outside of the temple, and. You, there is a crowd forming uh, about a block down from where the temple is. And you can see that they have made a perimeter around uh, one of the buildings there. Uh, do you have any ideas for what other kind of buildings exist in this part of the district? 
Um, on one, well, we've got the noodle house in the area. We could have that mm-hmm. pretty close in. Let's say that there is a, a marketplace. Uh, it's a sort of temporary, almost like a farmer's market where there's some infrastructure uh, for people to have uh, little shops in a, in a market square, but they're all temporary. They're all like pop-up shops. Uh, so it's all kind of, you know, just uh, cloth uh, signs and things like that because people come in for the day to peddle their wares. Is there a more permanent structure uh, near the marketplace there? Uh, in addition to the noodle house, uh, there is a uh, a permanent location where uh, someone is selling uh, novelty memory globes. Okay. Uh, so you, you see that people are lining up, uh, and forming a fairly wide perimeter around, uh, the building where this person was selling novelty memory globes. It's quickly apparent why, uh, they're giving it so much room, uh, around this building. It's not, it's not a large building, maybe maybe two stories or so, there are chains that have, well, basically sprung up and anchored themselves to the ground around the building and then have wrapped themselves around the building itself, uh, effectively sealing it off from the rest of the city. The the chains are large, uh, fairly massive, and they're compressing this building and you can see you know cracks forming in the walls the exterior walls of the building itself and people who are in there are now effectively trapped and there doesn't appear to be any way to get in there without somehow finding a way through the chains themselves so i tono what would you want to do in this situation uh, well, before I describe what I do, I just want to uh, add something to our discussion of the, of the questing knight. One of the mm-hmm. parts of the card is its actual numerical value, which is a five. Yes. And that in develop mode is a guide as to how difficult an action one can complete with uh, while under the influence of this particular sooth card during develop mode. So that's how it serves as a randomizer of sort, and so we don't really have to r- roll dice. It's the equivalent of having rolled a five on my actions for this particular encounter before we flip over the next uh, card. Uh, but what Itono does um, is he sees p- uh, the, the people who are in danger. Uh, he uh, f- runs over to the area. He's holding this this flag with the sign of the of the temple. First, he tries to use the the flag as a way to uh, kind of uh, uh, to leverage the chains away from the store. But I'll presume that does not work very well, that it, that the, uh, the pull for the, uh, the uh, standard, the banner, is not sufficiently strong uh, to pull the chains away or to create any sort of space. So instead, uh, inspired by his, you know, his recent experience assisting with the purging of the predatory cat, nightmare uh he uh channels uh the spirit of this predatory cat or the image of this predatory cat uh into his right hand and over his right hand then he sees a kind of a, an ethereal image of a vicious clawed hand and he, he tries to uh to claw at the chains to see if this magical claw fused to his fist 
uh, can rend the chains. So since we flipped over at level five, uh, that seems like a pretty good number for you to try and complete this task. Uh, so I'm going to say, yeah, the, the claws that you, you fuse onto your fist uh, slice through this, this metal, the metal chains, and uh, you are able to cut open uh, a small portal uh, that would allow you access into the building. As the chain falls away, you notice that it seems to retreat of its own volition into the ground outside of the... Uh, building. So where you have sliced it in half, the bottom part of the chain slithers back into the ground while the other part of the chain that's hanging over the building itself seems to be uh, trying to uh, reattach itself to another part of the chain somewhere else in order to keep that building locked down. Is the resulting gap in the chains large enough for me to move into the building or to try and pull people out of the building? Uh, yeah, it would be large enough for you to get in and get some people out. Well, I'm going to try and hold that, that, uh, that hole in the, the chained area and motion to people that I will help them with my left hand, the non-clawed hand, mm-hmm. <laughs> help them through a window, uh, and out of the building. Uh, yeah. So the, uh, the flag that you pulled out, uh, that you brought out with you from the temple, uh, people in this area, they recognize that as, uh, you know, the temple that you work at, and they are more than eager to follow your lead and uh, get out through the the opening in the the chains that you created for them. So I think that's probably a good place to cut our first little section of development mode. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is currently available for pre-order at InvisibleSunRPG.com. For a limited time, you'll receive an additional sooth deck when you pre-order the game. You can find our blog at IncantationsPodcast.blogspot.com or email us at IncantationsPodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. Do us a favor. Leave us a rating uh, and a review on iTunes. Uh, It really helps people find out about our show. Another great way is to just uh, tell a friend. Uh, Tell a friend about Incantations. Tell them about Invisible Sun. And that would really help us out a lot.